Welcome to What Is It About the Weather, where once a week we get together and explore the many ways that that simple thing we call weather intertwines itself into our lives daily, minutely, minutely. I don't even know if that's a word. I'm your host, Mark Jelinek, and this week we are going to get back to the topic of where does my weather come from? The models. We're going to talk about the models this time. But before I do that, first let me say, if you get any background noise, where I record, there is a major construction project going on not too far away. And so from time to time, you'll get some of that. It's it's not so much the noise of the construction. You'll hear that incessant beeping of, of vehicles backing up. Drives me nuts. I've tried to change the settings to minimize the impact. So hopefully I'm hearing it more often than you are. But there is a chance when sometimes when the vehicles are particularly close to where I am doing the backup thing, might hear some of it. So just know that that's kind of what's going on. I, you know, weeks, months, I don't know how long it's going to be going on. It's not a trivial project, but hopefully, uh, most of the time we'll be able to avoid the worst of it. Let's say, you know, a few weeks back, I had that hard drive issue that I told you guys about. And I think, you know, most of my data was fine, right? It's backed up. The rest of it, I was able to work with data savers, get that recovery process done. But I will say, one of the things that happened during that process is my backup drive, which was an old drive I had around that essentially was mirrored to become a a newer hard drive, had a previous version of an operating system. And instead of trying to reinstall and do everything, I've just been working off that one. And I realized doing some of the recordings that the volume levels weren't quite the same and went on for the better part of a year. Hopefully, though, all those little tweaks between dealing with the construction and dealing with the sound levels aren't causing too many problems, and I'm sure you'll let me know if that's the case. I think I found the right place for it. You're still listening. Hopefully you're still listening. (laughs) And that it's not, by any means, the end of the world. Now, as always, I want to take a moment. Thank those of you who are supporting the podcast, whether you do it financially via Patreon. What is it about the weather.com slash support? You can find out more about it there. PayPal. Rating the podcast, sharing it with people you know, think might be interested, telling them about it. Whatever way you do it, thank you. And in line with that, some of the supporters I have are veterans. And I do want to take a moment. We have Veterans Day here tomorrow in the U.S. And I know around the world there's a variety of different days going on. In the U.S., it's a, it's a thank you moment for people who have served, just generally speaking. We have a different day in the U.S. for fallen military folks that we call Memorial Day that, that happens earlier in the year. But I do know around the globe that tomorrow, whether it's Veterans Day here in the U.S., or in some of the other locations around the globe, that there are different setups for different things. That Remembrance Day is happening in the UK and most of the Commonwealth nations. And if my memory serves me correctly, it's the reason this day has kind of been chosen or used traditionally is that on this day, many years ago, at the end of the war, to end all wars, oddly enough, World War One, this was Armistice Day. This one the peace, I guess, was signed. 
So it's used again, not just in the U.S. where it's been used, you know, as a Veterans Day, but it's used in different, celebrated different ways around the globe. But generally speaking, there are a lot of locations that utilize it as a way to say thank you and remember those that have either served or particularly have given their life in service for their country. So for those of you that have here in the U.S. and for my listeners around the globe that have family members that may have served or have given their lives in the line of duty, thank you. Thank you for doing that. It's, you know, I don't think anybody can ever look at that. And if you really give pause to it for a moment and reflect on it, people putting their lives on the line for you is, is a big thing. And we should recognize that and embrace that and be thankful for it. All right. So, main topic. Where does my forecast come from? The models. We're going to get into models. Now, I'm going to try to keep the name of all of these in this series the same to start. So, they're all going to say, where does my forecast come from? The last one was the data. This one will be the models and, and so on. Hopefully, that'll make it easier for any of you who may have missed an episode and want to get caught up. Or maybe you're getting towards the end and you want to re-listen to collectively what everything was. You can more easily find those episodes. The first episode was back on October 20th. The next one will probably happen in the first couple of weeks of December. Don't know exactly, but somewhere in that range. Now, model. What is a model? Right. Different definitions, of course. The one that's relevant for us, clearly, is a representation. You know, people think of models as like a supermodel walking down the runway doing fashion, which is really born out of a, a model for an artist, you know, that, that you might pose for an artist or something along those lines. But there's also models that are, you know, you think of the model of X, and that is actually kind of born out of this representation because it was just a new iteration or a new version. Now, sometimes people think that the use of the word model, even with the numerical weather prediction, seems a bit odd. And I can understand that because we're trying to present a representation of the atmosphere. And you may say, but you don't know what the atmosphere is going to look like yet. And that's true. That's very true. But at its core, it is making a forecast of what that's going to be or a best guess of a representation and we do go back and validate against that. So at some point, there is a comparison between what's real and what occurred. It's not just that a guess is made and nothing ever happens with it, at least in our field. I can tell you that, that there's a lot of examination about how good the models do so that we can improve them. Now, numerical weather prediction or weather modeling, if you will, got its start back in the 50s, and we've talked a little bit about this in other episodes, when computers could finally do enough of the math, right? And it started with the large scale, or thinking about events that transpire over, you know, hundreds or thousands of kilometers over many days, and was built traditionally around a set of equations we call the primitive equations in meteorology. And they're really just a large-scale attempt to depict what's going on in the atmosphere and how it's going to move, how it's going to behave, Again, not, not just at a single level, not just at the surface, but across layers of the atmosphere. Now, over time, modeling has gotten more complex, 
right? We've added things like having the ocean and the air talk to each other because we've realized how important that is. Or we've added better ways to handle convection. You know, sometimes these smaller events are difficult to handle. They don't aren't easily represented or aren't easily forecast or depicted, if you will, because when we're dealing with grid spaces, and that's the other thing that's changed, you know, back in the day, it may have been a uh, hundred kilometers or a hundred miles even between grid points of where you made a forecast for a specific item. And as we know, thunderstorm can be a relatively small thing. So those things were harder to depict. So over time, again, all those things have changed. In the 70s, you know, while it got started in the 50s, it really kind of got its into its, uh, found its mojo, I guess, a little bit and, and really started progressing in the 1970s. And then the 1990s would kind of see that next iteration when we moved from doing what we call a deterministic or a single best guess to a suite or ensembles. And, you know, I've done episodes on ensemble prediction way back in the beginning. We may have to revisit that at some point. But that kind of came about in the 90s. And then later in the 90s, we started getting into these more what we would call specialized models or um, small-scale models. And the idea, again, was to maybe depict better things like convective behavior. All those things came along. Resolution increased. And, and much of that has been defined by how much computing power came about. So the, these iterations over time and the way things have evolved over time. And I, I f was doing a, a kind of a guest lecture in a, in a seminar course this week. And I was talking about some of the things. And one of the items that was mentioned is that I referenced, I guess, is a paper about numerical weather prediction. Now, unfortunately, that paper is not available broadly. But I will put the name in the show notes. I think it's called The Quiet Revolution of Numerical Weather Prediction. It's a great summary paper. And some of you who have electronic access to different catalogs through your, your local library may be able to go and pull that paper. But it's it's very well done. And you might be able to search it and find it on the Internet. I Again, because I know it's, it's still it's done in the Journal of Nature. And I know that, generally speaking, it's a pay-for item. You can buy it. I mean, I'll put the link to that, I guess. But you might be able to find a search and see somebody who uh, has not protected it to the level that they need to and, and find it on the Internet. But if, if this topic interests you, it's a very worthwhile read because it does talk about how We've understood enough about how the atmosphere works to be able to predict it numerically for some time. And so the advancements have been more in some of these other things that I've talked about, which is how much more can we compute than we used to be able to. You know, we, we have these supercomputers today, and traditionally, you know, some percentage of I found an article that talked about this specifically because there had been a new one bought in the U.S., at one of the you know research areas we call it NCAR National Center for Atmospheric Research I think is what the acronym is for I get lost in the acronyms even myself don't 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 ever feel bad if you're uh, not used to acronyms and you get into it with all the weather stuff and you start losing your mind yeah National Center for Atmospheric Research had put in a new server and so this article had been written around that time and it talked about how you know traditionally and I've mentioned this before Supercomputers made up a lot of how weather was done, and, and conversely, 
many of the supercomputers that even existed were used for weather forecasting. Now, that's not as much the case as it used to be. However, the bulk of the power or a, a large percentage of the power, respectively, is still made up in things that do weather or atmospheric or, or environmental type research. So these, you know, you can call them beast or, you know, sometimes I guess it's hard to equate. When you when you look at the list, and I'll, I'll put a link to that article, that article was written by a group that keeps a, a ranking, right, of what the top models are. And you can certainly go directly from that article to the list. And I, I think what's probably maybe a better way to understand it is let's even think about, you know, your computer at home or laptop computer, maybe use it for work or whatever. And I remember the big craze when, when these computers started having more than one core or processor, if you will. But even today, still, most of the computers that we use, even if you have a multi-core system, which most of us do now, you know, we didn't always used to, the cores were limited to, you know, we're still in the, you may still be in the single digits, depending on what kind of computer you have, but at most you have in the teens, again, for your average run-of-the-mill computer. Most of these supercomputers that we talk about or in the hundreds of thousands or millions. I, you know, I'm just trying to put some sort of context about how much different those computers are than yours. So part of it is how much processing power they have. Part of it is how much storage they have. And again, you may think, well, I've got my new one terabyte you know, solid state drive. Well, I mean, I used to keep, you know, 80, 100 terabytes of data, but that was a small fraction. So even in a general run every day with, with one of these models, right, it produces gigabytes or terabytes of data just in a single run, single run. So you can imagine trying to keep any of that data stored over time, be able to refer back to it. And this is why you don't always find all the data just sitting around. So there's this, there's this massive thing going on behind the scenes that are the computers themselves, right? And... The evolution over time of capacity, the ability to, you know, we talked about the data last time and getting it to those computers, the networks to handle transferring those gigabytes or terabytes of data around. As all that has evolved, we've been able to step up the game. But one of the things this article points out that I think is particularly interesting is that's where the advancements have been. The governing equations or the science behind it has not changed markedly in that period of time because these same fundamental processes still pretty much hold true today. Does it mean they're perfect? No. Doesn't mean they're perfect. Does it mean we fully understand them? No. Does it mean that there's, you know, we've learned everything there is to learn? No. But it does mean that we're still in an age where there's more gain to be had by improving the environment in which the calculations are done. All right? Now, so we got these big supercomputers, and they exist all over the world, and I mentioned that before. One of the things we're not going to try to do in talking about models is somehow go down a huge rabbit hole, which we easily could, in talking about how the model specifically does X, Y, or Z. As I told you, there's basically this set of primitive equations. It's not quite that simple. You know, over time it has evolved some. To say it hasn't evolved isn't isn't a fair thing. Focused on, yes, the advancements in computers have allowed us to go from, you know, 
100 kilometers or 100 miles even down to tens. And that's a huge piece of it because changing that resolution allows us to think about weather events that happen on smaller scales and we couldn't always do that. So again, just being able to do it effectively with the technology changes meant we didn't have to focus so much on the science. But that will change over time as well. So these models are everywhere, as I kind of started about a minute ago. The two you probably hear about the most are the U.S. and the European. Now, that's not their names to us, but I'm going to stick with that because those are the common monikers that are thrown out there. And you'll hear sometimes, which is better, the U.S. model, the European model? Well, the U.S. model, all the data is free and shared with the world. The European model, they charge for it. Well, the European model, it's not exactly that way, but there's truth to that. You know, They don't make all their, their data readily available for everybody. But what you probably don't know about or think about is there are other models too. You know, there's the Canadian model and the French model and the in the British model and the German model. Okay, so there are other centers. The Japanese model. Don't get as much press. And maybe their focus, even though they have this global model, has been more on their local forecasting. Or maybe their model doesn't maybe doesn't perform as well. I mean, I know one of the things in tropical cyclone forecasting that we always kind of laughed about a little bit was the Canadian model used to spin up everything into a tropical cyclone. Now, they've continued to evolve that model and tweak it to make it better. But it was one of those reasons, you know, maybe we didn't rely on it as much. But just keep in mind that while the European and the U.S. are traditionally what are maybe the heavy hitters or the all-stars are referred to constantly, they're not the only ones out there. And it doesn't mean that they're the only good ones either. And that's really as much of the point. And there are big ones and small ones. I mean, like I said, we started out with the big. And part of that reason is much of what happens in the weather, we can understand, again, in a coarse way, by what's happening on, on scales of thousands of miles or kilometers or multiple days versus what's happening in, in an individual event, like when you might have a rain right on top of you and how much precise rain you get. But there are, and have been over time, these, me what we call mesoscale, and this in meteorology it just really has to do with what we're looking at in terms of time and space. The models that have focused on that, and then we get down to microscale, and there's models that are coming out that are doing that. So collectively, more and more models have popped up. And we've also gone from everything kind of existing. I don't want to say in the public space, because like I said, for instance, the European model or, or some of these other countries, they may or may not make the data that comes out of that model readily available for everybody. But generally speaking, the purpose has still been at a governmental or at a public level. That, that's been the focus. And now we're seeing more in the private space. And you've heard me mention some of these before, the Panasonic model, right? Because it got a lot of press. Or IBM getting into the modeling. And traditionally, they haven't been. And yes, they bought a weather company, but even that company before them wasn't necessarily doing the type of modeling that they're now doing with Deep Thunder, you know, with one of their supercomputers. And there are other companies as well. I came across one, and it's called, I think, Medio Blue. It's in the Swiss group, and I used a, an image. And that's how I came across them. I, I'd heard the name before, but had not really seen much from them. And then when I was putting together this presentation I did, I found a graphic 
for something that I needed to explain that they did a very good job with. But in reading it, and I'll put a link in, in the show notes, they had a, a good example of, of some aspects of what they were talking about with modeling. So there are all these cases, right? There's, there's big and small. There's special purpose. You know, we, we have things geared just for tropical cyclones, right? Because of the importance and how large of an impact tropical cyclones can make. And so there are models geared specifically to the science, if you will, around tropical cyclones. Because tropical cyclones behave very differently from storms that might blow through in the wintertime. It's a different structure. It's a different fuel source. And so, yes, the primitive equations may still be the same, but the dynamics of how that behavior occurs and what happens is different. And so having models that focus on that is important. Now, every one of those models is somewhat the same and, and going to be different. Everyone's going to have resolutions that may not be dissimilar. One may you know, jump over another one, then the other one jumps back and so on and so on. So they continue to change and update and all those things. But generally, they're trying to get to the same point, which is at some degree, have enough of the surrounding environment for whatever they're trying to model. Even if they're doing a local little regional model, you need to be able to look at the broader scale that's influencing that. So you may need to still look at the globe or at least some broader area than when you're forecasting and look at the large scale behavior or what we call the synoptic scale in meteorology. So all those things go on multiple times a day, right? Some models do four times a day. The European as an example does, they have two main runs a day, zero Z and 12 Z. Ah, Z. You've heard me maybe mention that before, or have you ever heard Z time or UTC time kind of traditionally based on GMT or Greenwich mean time. But us meteorologists, we tend to think in a single time zone. We call it Z. I, I don't know where the Zulu came from. I mean, that's that's what it, the Z stands for. But I don't really, it, it is short for UTC or UCT, depending on what language you speak, which is kind of a universal time. And we do that because around the globe every day, we do things to help those models, like launch weather, weather balloons. And we do them a couple of times a day. And so you may hear about 0Z or 12Z, and that's what the Europeans use as their standard runs. And then some other people do 6 and 18Z. And yet other models now run once an hour. Again, as we've had more processing capability, we do that. They don't run out as far. And that's not their purpose. Their purpose is to get things right more in the short term. And the models are built that way. They're built to be very good in the short term, but only do the short term. But what's probably interesting is, you know, I mentioned weather balloons. And I mentioned the Z time, and you may have heard, you know, weather balloons launch a couple times a day, and that's generally true. And we have these model runs that are 0Z and 12Z, but keep in mind that what they're, they're not, it's not like a button magically pushes at 0Z or 12Z. That's not what's going on. The goal is to represent that, that's the start time, right? The goal is for 0Z or 12Z to be the baseline for where what the earth looked like or the atmosphere above the earth more specifically at that given time. And by all of them working together, you can compare models. And that's part of why we always see these comparisons. But a big part of this, and I alluded to it last time I talked about the data assimilation. And, and again, I could get lost in 
a single podcast just on data assimilation. And I don't want to do that because I don't think it'll be interesting to most most people. I am putting a, a few extra links in the show notes this time around. And if you go to the page and you go, uh, no, thank you. But I know for the person, for example, the person who wanted to ha- kind of have this episode, Kevin, in the beginning, he may find the link very interesting because there's I, I put in a link to a course just on the data assimilation piece where you can go in and read about what's going on. But you think about a weather balloon that's launched, and let's even think about this. And, and people say, well, weather balloons are launched, launched twice a day at, at 0Z and 12Z. But they're really not, right? They're launched sometime before, and they collect data to sometime after. The idea being is, generally speaking, they're trying to represent the atmosphere at a specific time. And that's what this whole data assimilation process is about. It's about how do we properly portray what's happening at 0Z and 12Z, again, not just where you're standing or I'm standing, and not just above our heads up into the top of the atmosphere, but all across the globe. And that's the idea. The goal is, this is what the data assimilation process is focused on. The goal is to get accurate as possible representations of what's going on or what the state of the atmosphere looks like. So again, creating a model more or less at a specific time. But what we've realized is you're much better off using data from before and after and precisely at that point as well to paint this picture. So the, actually the beginning of the model run is all about getting this data right and getting that initial state. And this is what's important about it, getting the initial state or what we call in, in modeling the initial conditions as accurate as possible. Because what we know is that errors that happen in in the forecast, a lot of it is very specific to how well the initial conditions are represented in the model. There's really we talk there's two things we talk about. We talk about IC and BC when we get all nerdy in the weather world. And that stands for initial conditions of one of them. Boundary conditions of the other. And boundary conditions are how we tweak the model right? Whether it's the, the physics that bind the model, or we may say, hey, you know, it's, uh, it's summertime in, in the Northern Hemisphere or the Southern Hemisphere or wherever. So you need to behave in a certain way that would be consistent with the summer. And the boundary conditions kind of keep the models from going haywire. So it, it's not only do we have these governing equations, but we know our realistic limits, right? The sun's only going to shine so many hours in the day, and it's only going to provide so much solar radiation. And so we may confine the model to tell it that. So collectively, between these initial conditions and flaws in those initial conditions, between the boundary conditions and the simplification that it provides and the resolution of the model and everything else, all those things collectively are what create the errors. And in the, in the model physics as well, the simplified look at things. So collectively, those things come together, and they're responsible for why we get errors, right? Because it's not a perfect system. It's, it's a lot of doing things to the best we can with the technology that we have. But generally speaking, all those things come together, and they crunch, right? Crunch give us output. But like I said, realistically, the beginning part, this data assimilation, can actually take a very long time. So no, no magic button is hit at 0Z to run. First, got to paint the picture. And then for, depending on the model type, then for, you know, minutes to hours, okay? 
we process what that forecast looks like. We put everything through those equations, as many steps as you know we need to, time steps as that model does, for as many grid points or locations as it's going to do. And it pulls all together and it, and it throws it out there, creates all these data sets. So then we move into the post-processing, if you will, of that raw kind of output, that raw data. You know, how are we going to get it to you? How's the model going to get what it said from its brain, its very mathematical brain, to a, a graphic, let's say, that you might look at as part of your forecast? Well, we're going to hit that part of it a little more next time. But do know that very seldom, I shouldn't say very seldom, that a lot of times what you're seeing in, in terms of your forecast, even when it's called a model forecast, that there are additional types of steps that go into what we call that post-processing. And those are things that I worked on and have in my career to try to take what we know are those errors, and those errors can be one or two things. I shouldn't really call them they're the misses, the incorrect forecast. Part of it is errors. Part of it is just got the forecast wrong. But the other thing that happens in models is they tend to have biases based on all the simplifications we do or streamlining we do or these boundary conditions we put on it. And hopefully what your forecast is going to receive, whether it's through automation or whether it's through human intervention, is what we call a, a post-processing step to eliminate. The goal is to try to eliminate biases and errors, more, more on the biases. Although humans might have a better play in errors where it can see where a model might get something wrong. And we'll, we'll talk about that. So the next time we get come back to this topic, like I said, in kind of mid-December-ish, let's use that as a baseline, if you will, we're going to get into that post-processing and what actually happens after the models kick us out these forecasts. And we've got to decide, is it good or is it not good? Or tell a computer to then decide, did the, did the model do the right thing? And that's what I talked about actually in the, the seminar I gave this week was talking about model biases. And it's a bit tricky. And in retrospect, I don't think I did a very good job. I did a good job in my brain. I knew what I wanted to say. But I had a room of very diverse minds looking at the problem. And you realize very quickly that sometimes your own biases come up in the way that you're trying to present things about biases. In any case, let's not dwell on that. Just wanted you to kind of have a feel for where we're going once that model spits the thing out the door. Now, I'm curious. With your forecast, when you get a forecast, and let's say you've been getting weather forecasts for 10 years, do you think they've gotten better? And at first glance, would you give that credit to you think the models will get better? You've heard that the models get better? Or do you think that someone else is processing that in a way that's making it better? Let me know. Let me know what you think on the modeling thing. Or if you even think models a good word that for what we use to describe them. Any case. I'm also curious, you know, some of you should now be at the end of your week of forecasting. If you did it last week, if you didn't, you know, whenever you do it, I'll be curious to see if anybody actually gave that a go and how it went. How did your forecast turn out? All right. 
It's a couple interesting things that I came across this week that I'll pass along before we let you get on your way. The good news is, you know, we, I've talked a lot about the impacts of the hurricanes this year, and certainly, you know, Puerto Rico being a very large location that got hit and devastated, and they lost the radar capability. But they've been able to put up a couple of temporary sites, and I'll put a, a link to an article about it, which is great news. The radars aren't as powerful, so it's not like, you know, uh, an ideal perfect replacement, but it's better to have something than nothing. Because they are subject to these little pop-up convective type events that can impact, you know, planes trying to come in and deliver aid or people out in the field doing work in dangerous situations if they were out in a thunderstorm, right? So having those radars is a important complement to any forecast model, which may say, hey, there's a good chance of thunderstorms, but may not be able to pinpoint a location Well, that radar plays a pivotal role in that. So it's good to hear that those are back. The other thing that was interesting, you know, batteries, right? We hear all the time about batteries. We're impacted every day by batteries doing good or your phone runs out or your laptop runs out, whatever it is. Got to charge it back up batteries. And I think about batteries with satellites, you know, quite often about, you know, they've got to have power, right? And some of them use a solar panel to recharge. But, we, you know, so much of where we're going in our future is focused on batteries. Well, a battery this week actually kept a weather satellite from launching on time. There's a new polar orbiter, not, not the geostationary, and I've talked about that in the past, the big one that went up this year. Actually, it went up in the last year. This is the latest series in the polar orbiters, which data is very important for these weather models, right? Well, apparently, the rocket that was going to be used to launch the weather satellite had a defective battery, and it delayed the launch. By at least four days. I don't know if they've done an update, but it's just sort of weird to me. It's batteries. You know, you envision some, some little guy sending the Energizer bunny in, putting in a new couple of uh, 2A batteries, but I know it's not that simple. And that's probably why it caused more of a delay than just someone walking out of the launch pad and throwing a couple of new Duracells or Energizers or whatever in there. Rayovacs, whoever, whoever's batteries you're using. All right, let's wrap up and let you guys get on your way. You know how to reach me, hopefully, by now. What is it about the weather at gmail.com? Or what is it about the weather.com slash contact? If you want to follow up to some of the questions I've thrown out there, if you have a question about models, whatever it might be, any of these types of things, don't hesitate to let me know and get hold of us. As I said earlier in the podcast, thanks to all of you who support the podcast. We use the RSVP model, rate, share, validate, and pledge. You can read more about that at whatisitabouttheweather.com slash support. So until next time, when we get back together talking about weather intertwining, something new, something different. But until then, until next time, just remember, there's much more to weather than the weather itself. This is two white super production. We're tired of hearing our uncle grovel, so please support him on patreon.com slash weather. <laughs> <laughs>